Novartis, committed to making innovative medicines for a world of patients and their families. Online at Novartis.com. Novartis, think what's possible. Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting April 26th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, Scientific American author William Zeitz talks about quark soup, how physicists are getting an idea of what the universe was like immediately after the Big Bang. Historian Joyce Chaplin discusses the man she calls the first Scientific American. And I'll talk about a conference I attended on evolution education, where I spoke to Jennifer Miller, one of the biology teachers directly involved in the Dover Intelligent Design Trial. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, William Zeitz. He's a physicist at Columbia University here in New York City and also serves as the scientific spokesman for what's called the Phoenix Experiment at the Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider, that's RIC for short, at Brookhaven National Laboratory on Long Island. Michael Reardon and Zeitz wrote the cover story for the May Scientific American called The First Few Microseconds. I called Zeitz at his office at Columbia. Dr. Zeitz, thanks for being with us today. It's my pleasure, Steve. In your Scientific American article, you, you mentioned Steven Weinberg's famous book, The First Three Minutes, and how back when he wrote that in, I think it was 1977? That's correct. He said that he couldn't get into any detail about what was going on in the very first hundredth of a second. But in your article, you talk about the fact that now we can. Yes, well, at the time Weinberg was writing his book, The Theory of Quantum Chromodynamics, How Quarks and Gluons Interact with Each Other, was just being developed. And at about the same time, physicists realized that they, they now understood what would happen in the very earliest moments of the universe. Prior to that, the indications were that there was an ultimate temperature, that you could not heat matter beyond a certain point. You would just start making more and more particles. We now understand that that was an indication that, in fact, the quarks and gluons were coming into play and now we understand how to extrapolate back to the first few microseconds and even earlier in the uh, after the Big Bang. You have this uh, this collider out on Long Island, and you basically, I mean, the, the concept is pretty simple. You smash two gold nuclei into each other at speeds approaching the speed of light, and then you, you look at the carnage that results. Uh, so what does all that tell you? Well, it's a little bit as if you lived in a world in which you only had access to water in the frozen form, like ice cubes, and you didn't have any other way to heat the ice other than to smash them together. And in a way, if you think of uh, the ice cubes being replaced by atomic nuclei, gold nuclei in this case, the only way we can see them melt into a gas or a liquid of quarks and gluons is by smashing them together. And you could imagine it would be rather difficult to find evidence of steam or liquid water by smashing ice cubes together. And it, correspondingly, it's difficult, but fortunately not impossible, to find evidence for that so-called phase transition from one form of matter to another by colliding nuclei inside these very large detectors. How big is the facility out on Long Island? Well, the accelerator is about a little over two miles around in circumference. And there are four experiments there, two so-called small experiments with collaborations of about 100 scientists and two large uh, 
detectors with collaborations, each of around 500 scientists and engineers. And you are the official spokesperson for one of those larger experiments. That's right. I'm the spokesperson for the Phoenix experiment. And what specifically does that experiment look at? Well, Phoenix is designed to look into the very interior of this region, if you like, to perform the X-ray imaging of the collisions that result. It's actually much more than that. It's a multi-purpose detector that has the ability to look at all stages of the collision from the very first moments when the nuclei collide until the final decay products emerge. And so you you use this analogy of looking at the the liquid water and the steam based on the collision of the ice particles. Uh, so when you when you actually collide the gold nuclei into each other, what are you what do you in fact get, and and what does that then in fact tell you? Well, perhaps the most surprising thing that's resulted is the understanding that there really is a liquid form of this matter. For various reasons, people thought that the collisions would be more like dry ice rather than regular ice. If you let a chunk of dry ice sit on your tabletop, it doesn't turn into liquid carbon dioxide. It turns into vapor. And the prevailing sentiment and hunches in the community were that when we smashed our nuclei together, that they would transition immediately into something more like a gaseous state than a liquid state. And instead, we found that the behavior of the particles, when you look not at individual particles, but how they emerge as a swarm, as droplets almost, uh, they're much better described by the equations of hydrodynamics uh, as if they were a fluid rather than some diffuse gas. So that's always great when your experiment gives you results that you didn't expect. Very exciting and also very challenging to try and understand where this fit into the framework of quantum chromodynamics and to go back and look at the calculations and understand which calculations made sense, which ones were in error, and the process of sorting that out has been extremely stimulating scientifically. Uh, the, the Large Hadron Collider goes online next year in Europe, and how does that fit into this work? Does that extend this? It will extend it, and it will, again, help us in this process of sorting out which are, if any, are the correct models of the liquid state we think is formed in the accelerator at Brookhaven. The LHC will operate at a much higher energy, and there are competing uh, proposals that it will either truly reach something more like this gaseous state or the liquid behavior will persist at these much higher energies. So that's one of the very first things that we'll know when collisions start at the LHC, and that will be a tremendous advance in our understanding. And how long do we need to wait before we start getting results from that? I think 2009 is when we might see those results. That's great. So just a, another few years, and you'll get uh, presumably even closer to the, the very first moments of the Big Bang. That That's correct, and while that's going on, we'll be busy exploring the details of what we are forming at RIC and mounting new experiments to look with even more precision at the collisions in Brookhaven. And RIC, again, stands for? The Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider. Great. Dr. Zeitz, thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you, Steve. 
Zeitzen Reardon's article, The First Few Microseconds, is available free on our website, www.siam.com. Want to share some thoughts about the podcast? Let us know what you think by participating in our survey at www.siam.com slash research. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, researchers say they can measure a child's stress level by testing the kid's drool. Story two, while driving in Florida a couple of weeks ago, I twice had to avoid hitting iguanas running across the road. Story three, a team of paranormal investigators has found evidence of a ghost below decks on a ship at Mystic Seaport in Connecticut. And story four, octopi, or octopuses, however you prefer, use nerve signals traveling in opposite directions to form virtual elbows in their tentacles when necessary. We'll be back with the answer, but first... 2006 marks Benjamin Franklin's 300th birthday. The politician, diplomat, and publisher was also a first-rate scientist. Harvard University historian Joyce Chaplin has written a new Franklin biography that concentrates on his science. To find out more, I call Chaplin at her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Dr. Chaplin, thanks for talking to us. Thank you. First, uh, the, the name of the book, The First Scientific American, Benjamin Franklin and the Pursuit of Genius. Let's, uh, let's tell everybody that you are not in any way affiliated with Scientific American. That's just a coincidence with the book titles. Exactly. Franklin has been called an American, um, so often in the first American that I wanted to remind everyone that the science had something to do with his identity, so it was an independent finding, I swear. And why the first scientific American, though? Because science was so important, not only to his identity, but to the later career that he had as an American founder. He really had much more prominence and influence um, as a man of science than he would have otherwise, and certainly he had the most prominence and influence of any American of his time because of the work that he'd done on science, hence first scientific American. Now, April 29th, uh, 250 years ago, Franklin was elected to the Royal Society of London, the most prestigious scientific society in the world. So what earned him that election, and why was that such a big deal in everything that happened after that in Franklin's life? He was elected because of his work on electricity. His experiments and observations on electricity um, had been published in London the first edition in 1751. On the basis of that, the Royal Society awarded uh, Franklin its coveted Cupley Medal, um, still a very high award, which Franklin received in 1753, and that was followed up with an election, his election to the Royal Society in 1756. And that was an amazing honor. First of all, it was rare for somebody who had uh, who was from humble birth, like Franklin, to be so elected. Most of the time, this is an honor that went to gentlemen who had been born gentlemen. That is fairly high up on the social scale. Um, it really did prove that Franklin was self-made as a man of science in a very significant way. So quite an extraordinary honor um, and done to recognize Franklin's work on electricity. After that point, the honors never stopped. Franklin kept getting elected to other societies. He got honorary degrees. Nearly every kind of accolade was given to him. <clears throat> and really, on the strength of that as well, 
he began to get important political positions. Uh, he had had some political influence before, but nothing like what he got afterward. Most significantly, he became postmaster general uh, for the colonies, uh, a position for which he had really used his network um, in and out of the Royal Society in London in order to, to guarantee that he would get that job. And after that point, his political influence really increases as well. So in some ways, um, it's that publication of the experiments and observations and then the Royal Society's recognition of that important publication that made Franklin what he was. So it's fairly safe to say that without Franklin the scientist, we don't have Franklin the elder statesman of the American Revolution. He would never have become famous and influential without that work in science. Um, and uh, he would never certainly have had the international reputation that would have allowed him to represent the United States in Paris uh, quite successfully. You've written extensively about an area of Franklin's science that maybe is not as well known as the electricity, and that's his charting of the Gulf Stream. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, that was a very interesting and long-lasting episode in Franklin's life. He was fascinated with the sea. He wanted to run away and be a sailor as a boy, um, and he didn't do that, but he did manage to investigate the ocean really throughout his life culminating with his uh, charting of the Gulf Stream. He and a cousin, uh, Timothy Folger, did the first chart of the Gulf Stream in 1768. Um, and uh, he did subsequently two more charts of the Gulf Stream after that. I think that work is very interesting in the way that it shows that science was very embedded in politics and public culture at the time. Franklin charted the Gulf Stream and wrote about it initially because he was postmaster general, and he was worried about the time that it took the post, the mail, to get back and forth across the Atlantic. Uh, and the Gulfstream helped explain why it took longer going from England to the colonies than the reverse. Um, so that's a way in which uh, science was uh, very much part of Franklin's political life, his life in public affairs. And that's really true of all of his science though I think the, the work on the ocean makes that immediately apparent in a way that perhaps the electrical experiments don't. Well, that's, that's really interesting. I had no idea that the, uh, the marriage of, of one's uh, political station and the, the direction of one's science might be connected in that way. Well, I think that today we think of scientists as being very specialized and in some ways cut off from other fields. But in Franklin's day, in the 18th century, science was really part of public culture. Uh, scientific demonstrations were done in public. A wide array of people took an interest in science. Uh, probably the British monarch best trained in science ever was George III, uh, just an indication, again, of the fascination uh, that, that science held for people. Another good example um, is just where Franklin seemed to have done most of his electrical experiments. Uh, he and the other members of the Library Company of Philadelphia who did those experiments uh, seemed to have done them in part of the Pennsylvania State House, now Independence Hall. Um, and that's, I think, just a wonderful example of how uh, a, a public building, a government building, could be loaned um, basically as a laboratory. Um, in order for people to do science, um, and it shows a way in which science is really not cut off from the rest of public life in a way that obviously uh, it would be now. Right, although we do do anthrax experiments in the U.S. Capitol. Oh, building. dear. <laughs> uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to claim that Franklin's experiments were the ancestor of that. Right, right. Doctor, I almost called you Dr. Franklin. Does that happen a lot? 
<laughs> uh, sometimes. Uh, I always say that I can't accept the compliment. <laughs> Dr. Chaplin, thank you very much for, for talking to us today. Oh, thank you so much. Joyce Chaplin's book about Franklin is called The First Scientific American, Benjamin Franklin and the Pursuit of Genius. We'll be right back. Novartis, committed to making innovative medicines for a world of patients and their families. Online at Novartis.com. Novartis, think what's possible. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, testing drool can tell you a child's stress level. Story two, Florida roads are lousy with iguanas. Story three, paranormal investigators found a ghost at Mystic Seaport. And story four, nerve signals going in opposite directions enable an octopus to temporarily form what amounts to a functional elbow. Time's up. Story one is true. Looks like drool gives away a child's stress level. Not the quantity of drool. I always drool more when I'm relaxed myself. But no, researchers publishing in the April issue of the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships say that levels of the enzyme alpha amylase found in saliva and thus in drool give you a measure of the activity of the sympathetic nervous system's fight or flight response and thus of stress. Story two is true. I personally had to swerve twice in Florida a couple of weeks ago to avoid hitting a couple of iguanas. One was on an on-ramp to I-95, so I'm not sanguine about that guy's current condition. People apparently have released pet iguanas in Florida by the thousands, and they reproduce, and they're now everywhere, which is not good for native species. About 10,000 iguanas have overrun the Florida town of Boca Grande. No es bueno. Story four is true. Researchers have learned that an octopus makes a sharp bend in its tentacle by contracting muscles based on the collision of one nerve signal sent from the base of the tentacle to the tip and another going in the opposite direction. The elbow comes in handy, sorry, for feeding. You can read David Biello's story about how the octopus does this on our website, www.siam.com. All of which means that story three, the one about a team of paranormal investigators finding evidence of a ghost on a boat at Mystic Seaport in Connecticut, is, of course, totally bogus. But members of what is called the Rhode Island Paranormal Research Group are trying to determine why various groups of tourists report seeing the same apparition below decks on a boat at Mystic Seaport. The apparition is a man wearing 19th century clothing and smoking a pipe. This type of apparition is technically known as an actor, and the paranormal activity is a publicity stunt, which I have played into, but hey, Mystic Seaport's nice, you should go there, have a nice time. Radio reports said the paranormal investigators were bringing in sophisticated equipment such as infrared cameras. You know, uh, actually, with what your average actor gets paid, there's no reason to assume that this guy can stay warm enough to show up on an infrared camera. Next up, well, me. Last Friday and Saturday, I attended a conference called Teaching Evolution and the Nature of Science. It was sponsored by the New York Academy of Sciences and took place at John Jay College here in New York City. And as you can probably tell from the title, the conference was aimed at biology teachers who are increasingly under threat all around the country by people who at the least want evolution out of classrooms and sometimes want decidedly non-scientific concepts like intelligent design taught in public school biology classes. 
Kansas has redefined science entirely to include supernatural causation. Anyway, there were some excellent lectures by scientists like Brown University's Ken Miller, who were giving the teachers more of the factual ammo that they need about evolution. And there were talks by some of the people at the front line, like Jennifer Miller, no relation to Ken Miller. I'll have more about the Teaching Evolution Conference and how you can virtually attend the entire thing in a moment. But first, I want to play you the interview I did with Jennifer Miller. She's one of the biology teachers at Dover High School in Pennsylvania, ground zero for the latest and very ill-advised attempt to knock off evolution. Quick review, an anti-evolution school board wanted a statement denigrating evolution to be read to biology classes. Miller walked out rather than read the statement because reading the statement would have violated her professional code of ethics. Parents who did not want their children exposed to what amounted to religion in a public school science class sued the school board in what became the now famous Kitzmiller case. The defendants were the anti-evolution school board. In the end, Judge John Jones, a conservative, church-going, non-activist judge, issued a scathing 139-page decision for the parents. And between the end of the trial and the release of the judge's decision, the anti-evolution school board was voted out of office and replaced with a pro-science school board. Four of the witnesses in the Dover trial spoke at this conference, including Jennifer Miller. She gave a blow-by-blow account of the entire Dover case. I caught up with her right after her talk. That din you hear in the background is a few hundred people attacking the snack table between lectures. That's how you know you're at a real science conference. Anyway, here's Jennifer Miller. What uh, what general counsel would you give to teachers all across the country for whom this issue can descend all of a sudden? Be prepared, first of all. Um, you know, go to symposiums, go to conferences where you learn the current um state of evolution, the current evidences for evolution, so you can bring that into your classroom. Also be aware of some of the things like intelligent design that are trying to attack evolution so that you are prepared, because honestly, we weren't prepared in Dover. You know, we didn't know until it came upon us, you know, what was out there. So uh, be prepared, know what you're going to say, stand as a department. You know, if if you're questioned about intelligent design or evolution, stand as a department and, you know, maybe formulate something as a department that, you know, you're going to say or your position or whatever. Just be prepared for what's out there. And one of the things that you brought up was the importance of taking really good notes on all the meetings that you go to. Mm-hmm. Yes, we uh, learned that very quickly because we were asked in our depositions and things, you know, who said what, what meeting were you at, and we learned very quickly that... You know, they all meshed together, so we had to document everything. We kept minutes, um, every piece of paper we got, we put the date on it, you know, when we got it, and that kind of thing. So we amassed piles and piles of notebooks and things of papers. What, uh, what, what's it like there now? How has, how has the, uh, the whole community sort of responded to what happened? Um, I know from a teacher standpoint, it's a much more positive environment um, to be in now that the new school board has been elected. Um, You know, there's always issues in every school building, you know, of, you know, contract issues and that kind of thing. But as far as, I mean, the overall is very positive. Uh, The students are just glad that it's over, basically. Um, They were tired of being in the news and tired of being singled out. You know, every day they'd open up the paper and see more about Dover. So they are very glad not to be in the news anymore. You you spoke about something funny that your principal said when when you were first told that you were all going to have to 
talk about intelligent design at any rate. Uh, she had written a letter to the assistant superintendent saying that our teachers are not qualified to teach creationism, they're qualified to teach evolution and science, not creationism. So we had no training in creationism, so how can we teach that in the classroom? Uh, what was the response to that? Um, we didn't really get a response, so we just sent, you know, we just know the letter was sent, so I don't, <laughs> I don't know what the response was. And uh, you might not know the answer to this, but I've been trying to uh, check every once in a while to see if perjury charges have ever been filed against some of the defendants. Do you know what's going on with that? No, I knew there was an investigation. As far as I knew, there was an investigation by the U.S. Attorney, but I, you know, I'm saying I haven't heard anything. And um, talking to some of the lawyers, perjury is one of the hardest things to prosecute. So whether it'll come about, I don't know. Because an accusation was made from a pretty high source. I mean, Judge Jones in the decision basically says they perjured themselves. Exactly, exactly. And it it was so gratifying at that point to um, to know that he believed what we said, you know what I mean, and, you know, not what some of the board members were saying because they were, you know, opposite of what we were saying. So it was very nice to read the decision and realize that he did believe us <laughs> when we talked. Uh, what was it like for you guys when you read the actual full Jones decision? There was a lot of high fives, a lot of hugging going on. It was right in the middle of the day when the decision actually came out. Um, uh, but actually reading it, reading every word of it must have been transcendent. Oh, it was. It was. I, you know, went home and, you know, read it. And, it, it, you know, if you're worried about ever reading a decision from a judge and there's a lot of legal ease, it was wonderfully written. I mean, it was 139 pages, but very understandable. It was great. This decision should be in all the anthologies, the, the best science writing anthologies <laughs> that come out every year, because the science exposition in the decision is so good. Exactly. Exactly. And it was... Um, one of the lawyers told me that uh, it was lucky that he was the one that had to cross-examine some of the, or to examine some of the plaintiff's witnesses, like Ken Miller, because he didn't have a science background. So he, you know, went and asked them questions to make the science experts bring it down to the level of sort of the common person, so that even the judge with no science background could understand what we were talking about. And it was obvious that he got it by the decision. Yeah, his uh, his dissection of the statement. That was the whole crux of the matter, the statement, uh, the pro-intelligent design statement that was to be read in the classrooms. The judge actually spends many pages dissecting that statement in the decision, and it's really a wonderful thing to read. It's so it so clarifies what all the issues were. Yeah, exactly. It takes you know it takes it apart piece by piece and says why this part you know doesn't make any sense and why this part. So it was it was it was great. You couldn't have asked for a more thorough decision. Well, Jennifer Miller, thanks very much. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. In Jennifer Miller's talk at the Evolution Education Conference, she told the story about how one of the students at the school had painted an evolution mural, and one day it just disappeared from the school. When one of the school board members was asked what happened to it, he responded, I gleefully watched it burn. So that gives you a little taste of the kind of thing that these people were up against in Dover. Anyway, there were lots of terrific talks at the conference, which was put together by the New York Academy of Sciences. I put up more info about it on our blog, which you can access at blog.siam.com. And within a couple of weeks from today, uh, audio and video of all the talks at the conference should be available for download. To get the links, just go over to blog.siam.com and look for the story titled Teaching the Science. Also, a couple of weeks back in the April 12th podcast, we talked about a case in Canada uh, 
Concerning researcher Brian Alters, who was also one of the expert witnesses in the Dover trial, Alters wanted to do a study on whether the intelligent design movement had made any inroads in Canada, and he had his grant denied because the funding agency said he hadn't supplied enough evidence for evolution. Anyway, thanks to a couple of podcast listeners, Jared Spice and Sammy Zahabi. I think Zahabi is a spice, coincidentally. Anyway, uh, they wrote in with the news that the funding agency, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, has since clarified its position by issuing a statement that begins, the theory of evolution is not in doubt. SSHRC, that's the Research Council, recognizes the theory of evolution as one of the cornerstones of modern science and of our understanding of the world, etc. I put a link to the entire statement up in the same blog entry about the Evolution Education Conference at blog.siam.com. The entry is called Teaching the Science. Interested in the inner workings of the human brain? Scientific American Mind magazine brings you breakthroughs in psychology, neuroscience, and more. For a free preview, visit www.siammind.com. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. And also remember that Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.